You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. All right, well, uh, today uh, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to turn with me there. A little bit of a different message today. I know I've been saying that a decent amount, but um, just been meditating and thinking on a few things. Had a lot of time to think on vacation, just sitting on the beach, and uh, just thinking back through all that we've been through in Hebrews. So today is a little bit of a We're gonna be blitzing and running through a lot of the things that we've covered already in Hebrews. And then I'm just gonna be doing a little bit of a uh, feasting, or if you could say almost feasting on some of the main ideas of Hebrews 10. And then even next week, we're gonna be looking at Hebrews 10 again for Palm Sunday. But it's a little bit of a feasting, uh, of a feeding ourselves in from the word of God throughout all of Hebrews 1 through 10 that we've looked at so far. Then I'm gonna be moving into the actual feast that's taking place today, and that's the Lord's table. And so what I wanna do today is simply tie in some of the themes and the ideas that we've been discussing through this amazing, powerful book of Hebrews, and then we're gonna tie it into a look, uh, a little bit of a closer look at the Lord's table of what the bread and the cup, how that ties in when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As Josh talked so much about blood last week, maybe you were here, maybe you weren't. He talked about his grandfather, it still sticks in my image. His grandfather slaughtering all those chickens, right? You remember that story? Uh, he did a fantastic job. That's all I remember, for, no, I'm joking. I remember more than that, but that just stuck and it was like a horrifying image, you know? Because I'm not that kind of a person. I just go to the supermarket and purchase my chicken, frozen and already done, and I don't want to think about where it came from. Uh, but those of you who are hunters and all that, you know exactly what, that, what he's talking about. And so as we looked at last week, all of the blood and all these, these things that are in church that are, seem odd and strange, to outsiders and yet when we come to the Lord's table we we take of the body and of the blood or the cup so how does this tie in and we're just looking at that today so I in some ways I sometimes have a a a nice outline or or these illustrations that today we're just kind of I don't know if it's a a group Bible study if we're just kind of walking through some of these themes and ideas and we're going to talk through them and then we're going to spend a little extra time today thinking about the Lord's Supper as we close so I hope it'll be helpful for you in a time for just to open up your heart, receive God's word, feast and drink upon the word today. That's, a, that's, that's kind of the idea I think I have for you and all. So let me um, begin by reading Hebrews 10. We're just gonna read, I'm not covering all these verses today. I just wanna kind of put it into our mind and then we're gonna look at some of the main ideas. But Hebrews 10 verse one carries over a lot of the ideas that Josh just covered last week, last two weeks, but he, he's rehashing some of it. Hebrews 10 verse one says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I mean, the law can't make us perfect, right? We need something else. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, verse four, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away, you could put in the word, our sins. It it can't take away our sins. Verse five, well, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he quotes from Psalm 40 here, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. This reminds us of Saul when he tried offering sacrifices in Samuel and he went in and, and Samuel says obedience is more important than sacrifice. That's from in the book of Samuel there. Saul and Samuel. But in burnt offerings, sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Verse seven, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will or I have come to obey the word of God. Oh God, as it is written of me in the scroll and in the book. Verse eight says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, right? The first is obsolete, the second has come and been upgraded. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, I'm just gonna keep reading here till verse 18. Verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14 is a, a key verse here. Verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After these, those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds this amazing phrase, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for all that has been sung today and all the words that have been shared and the words that we have prayed the meditations of our heart, Lord, may they be honey, may they be sweet to your, your lips, your mind, your, your heart. May you receive these things, God. Like We pray to you knowing, God, that sometimes we don't feel as if I have the right words or know how to fully express all the things that I think and feel, but God, we know that you hear us. God, may you speak to us through this message today in your word, and may your spirit be powerful among your church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So turn back to Hebrews 10, verse one. We see this phrase, the message entitled today is, is all good things or the, the good things that are to come. Good things that are to come. We think of this good things, incredibly good things. And that phrase was sticking in my head as I was reading this over vacation. Hebrews 10, one, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. And today I guess I, I want us to just meditate a little bit together on the good things in which we participate in under the new covenant today. We live under the new covenant. We have experienced magnificent forgiveness for our sins. We have experienced and we partake in a sacrifice. The Bible says a single sacrifice once for all forever. It's an extraordinary thing. These are the good things that the shadow of the law foretold that were to come. And today we come to church and sit in this comfortable chair, or at least those in the red chairs are comfortable, right? We sit in this comfortable building and we just, we just act like, you know, nothing, nothing different has changed. It's just another day. Let us not leave this place today without considering for a moment the magnitude and the majesty and the beauty of the good things that we experience each and every day. 
under the new covenant through the power of Jesus Christ and his blood that covers our sins. Because so often in our hearts and in our lives, or maybe there's a moment in your time where you've asked yourself, am I truly forgiven? How is this possible? And the book of Hebrews has been unpacking that. I know it's a very pastoral preachy phrase. Let us unpack this. Well, it is kind of like that where you have this book and as we've done over the last several months, we've unpacked what forgiveness of sins means, what salvation is, what atonement is. Ultimately, we believe, we have faith and we trust and we are saved And there is a base level understanding, but as we grow and mature up in Christ, we become understanding of what is truly encapsulated in that travel case. We understand that is with us, we unpack it, and we see what's in there, and we behold the glory of what's found within this treasure trove. Or it's like a a car that you get in and drive. If you're clueless like me, you get in the vehicle, you drive down the road, having no idea what's going on within the engine that allows you to drive down the road, right? Some of you car guys are just horrified with me as a man, I know, okay? It's something I have to live with every day, right? I'm confident in it, right? But it's this fact that in the vehicle, in the car, I don't understand at the level that some of you do. Some of you get in a car and you recognize every facet. You could take that car apart and you could put it back together better than it was when you found it. You know, so this idea of salvation, you get in the car, you drive down the road, you come to church, you participate in the Lord's Supper as you should. Our faith allows us to freely come and to participate as a member of the body of Christ because you have been forgiven and you are loved by God. But as you grow up in him, you start to understand the nuts and bolts. Would you say that? The nuts and bolts of Christianity. I'd say Hebrews is a lot about that. It's helping you grasp and understand the nuts and bolts of salvation. The atonement. What does the blood mean? Why did Jesus die on a cross? How did this all work? I recognize I'm a sinner and I am saved by grace and Jesus died for me. I believe. Yes, I believe even a child can understand that. But as you grow up, we begin to understand how this all functions and works. What does the blood represent? What is it that this event, this body, this cup, that what does this mean? And I think Josh especially did a fantastic job over the last two weeks in chapter nine, unpacking especially the sacrifice, the tabernacle, the temple, the ministry of Christ and the blood and the sacrifice that was given for us on our behalf. And so it's it's an amazing thing to start unpacking that. And some of it we don't fully grasp, but we grow into these things. All right, so what I'm gonna do now is, um, since I've been told I talk very fast at times, I'm gonna talk even faster here. We're gonna run through chapters one through nine, and I'm just gonna run through some of the highlighted things that I pulled out from some of the sermons that I taught and Josh taught over the last couple weeks. We start in chapter one, and we're just literally running through some of the main ideas. This is a feast on Hebrews 1 through 10 in in like three minutes flat. Ready? Uh, Chapter 1. You're like, you should have just done this at the beginning. Why did you take it? Okay, now, chapter 1, we uh, looked at this Hebrews 1, the very beginning, long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We think of the Old Testament, the the prophets, and he spoke. But in these last days, God spoke to, to us by his son, Jesus. Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. He upholds the universe of his power. And he has a superior name than even that of the angels. Do you remember that? Hebrews chapter one, Jesus is better than even the angels. And God speaks to us today through Jesus. Chapter two, 
says therefore because Jesus is so important he's better than even any angelic presence or messenger therefore pay attention to this listen up remember the the pastor the preacher of Hebrews I believe is more of a preacher than a writer he's a preacher and he says pay attention unless you drift away unless you neglect such a great salvation for we who have received such an amazing message of saving grace we need to not fluff it off but we need to pay attention and persevere for who am I he says what is man that you are mindful of him And though we might not see everything under control or seems like everything is under God's power, but we recognize that Jesus is still powerful. He is still in control. We do not maybe see everything under subjection to him, but what we do see is we see him. Remember that? We see him. And through him, it is through death that he destroys the power of death. Hebrews 2 taught us. Hebrews chapter 3 taught us to consider Jesus Consider Jesus again as the preacher hammers home that he's more worthy than even your father Moses, the one in Joshua that um, Brian was speaking about earlier. More worthy than Moses, as much more glory than a builder of a house has than, um, and more honor than even the house itself. So take care, don't fall away from this message. Do not fail to enter the rest that you stand to receive as the spies were on the edge of the promised land. Do not fail to enter that rest and die in the wilderness. Press on, do not shrink back. Step into receive the rest that Joshua will provide as he says in chapter four. And again, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can flip through and see some of these ideas that are, I'm picking out. Chapter four tells us that Joshua didn't provide a, a Sabbath eternal rest for the people of God but you may strive to enter the Sabbath rest given to you by God. God's word is trustworthy, it's living, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it's aware of your thoughts and intentions. You can trust the word of God, hear the word of God. And it is because even though God knows the thoughts and the intentions of your heart, he still loves you because you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. He, he's able to know what you've gone through. He has suffered like you have suffered. So because Jesus goes before us, we can with confidence and boldly come before the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need because of Jesus, who is your high priest. And then he goes into that high priest. Chapter five, I told you I'd talk fast. Chapter five, this high priest does not offer sacrifices for his own sins for he is sinless. But in holiness, Jesus offers himself. Therefore, he is actually the only one who is able to save you from your sins and from death. And he becomes the, as the Bible says, the source of eternal salvation. So do not become dull in your hearing, he warns you again. Do not become dull in your hearing. You are living on milk. Some of you are unskilled in the word and you have not grown up into these things. Mature, eat the meat, he says. Chapter six, he then encourages you to leave the elementary doctrines, not that those are not important, for they are, but to grow up into maturity. For many of you sit where, many have sit, sit where you sit, have heard what you hear, but they have fallen away from grace, and they have as a result made a mockery of the saving grace of God. For many of you feel, uh, of you, I feel sure though, of you, of better things. Do you remember that he says? Be careful that you do not fall away, but of you I know your heart and I believe and trust that for you people I feel sure of better things. Love that phrase. So believe now. Hold fast to the hope that you have. Do not let it go. For your hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. Do you remember that from chapter six? 
Then chapter seven where he gets into the really meaty, complicated stuff. Chapter seven where he says, these are the things I was wanting to share with you, but now I'm gonna get deep into it. I tell you that the person of Melchizedek is what he explains in chapter seven. Jesus becomes the only, like Melchizedek, the only unique priest king in order for his, his own, the order of Melchizedek. He's in his own uh, kind of priestly order. Jesus becomes our king of righteousness and our king of priests, of peace. He is also our priest. He is this royal priesthood, like Melchizedek, who we do not necessarily know from where he came from or when he died. Jesus, in like manner, has no beginning and has no end and lasts eternal, forever. So consequently, he gives us a better hope. He's the guarantor of a better covenant, a better promise, since he is not prevented by death, but continues eternally to be our intercessor and our priest forever. He's the perfect sacrifice, holy and perfect forever, through which we draw near to God. Chapter eight was the message I preached before I left. Chapter eight told us that the point of all this that he's been saying, the point of all this is that this high priest that we have, he is our mediator. He's the bridge builder. He ministers, not in an earthly tent though, like a tabernacle here, with earthly copies and shadows of the law, and, but rather in a true tabernacle ministering in the throne room of heaven, which makes Jesus our priest in a better place, in a better ministry, mediating a better covenant and a better promise. For like the old that has passed away, the new has come. The old covenant has been upgraded by the new. Therefore, do not shrink back and pursue the old when you have the new right in front of you. Chapter nine, Josh went over the last two weeks. Josh expounded on this, that, that the heavenly tabernacle is this place that we can have access to God through the blood of Jesus The blood sacrifice was this requirement. The pure and precious blood of Jesus has been sprinkled not only in those places of the heavenly tent but also upon our hearts and our consciences and we have a clean conscience that covers our sin as Christ ministers in the holy place not made with hands. And then Hebrews 10 today which we just read we'll look in the next couple of weeks this law that we reminds us of the Old Testament was but a shadow of the good things to come. The blood of bulls and goats, they they could never take away your sins for those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over. But the blood of Jesus was spilled once for all. A single sacrifice. Placed positionally for us in a restored relationship to restore our relationship with God. And through that sacrifice, God's spirit now comes into our lives and sanctifies us into holiness until Jesus returns. We stand forgiven. Forgiveness is a fact, not just a feeling. We still sin at times, but we are forgiven in our position. And that can never change because God will remember the penalty of our sin no more for it has been forgiven and it has been paid for by Jesus' single one-time forever sacrifice. This is the gospel unpacked in more detail. And then looking ahead, we'll look at Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith chapter. It's like, if you don't believe me, you look at this guy and this lady and this person and that guy, of Abraham and Sarah and, and Moses and Cain and Abel and all these stories that he goes into the Old Testament, this faith chapter. And then we go into Easter and Brian already ruined everything here with uh, reading Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two earlier. No, I'm joking. We're looking for, that's what we're headed for and it's the most powerful verse I think in all of Hebrews. Looking to Jesus, right? The author and finisher or founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to him. So that's the summary of where we've come from, where we're headed. 
And even as we look at Hebrews 10, just briefly in some of these ideas, we look at Hebrews 10 verse one, it says, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. This is a, a point that he's made several times. And so many times it's this question I get a lot of times, well, what was the point of the law? What was the point of the Old Testament? Why do we even need a humongo chunk of your Bible, right? Literally all that right there. You're like, what's the point of the Old Testament? The Old Covenant, isn't it old and not important? <laughs> And so what's the point of that Old Testament, Old Covenant? What's the point of the law? Well, so much of that is teaching us and helping us to understand what the new presents to us in the new covenant and promise with God. The law was a shadow. It was a shade. It was a copy. It was a silhouette of what was to come. The true form of those realities. The true form. That word form is the word icon in the Greek. In Colossians 1, we looked at how Jesus was the image of the invisible God. That word image is icon, the same word we use today, icon. He is the image icon of the invisible God, Jesus. So the true form of all those realities, the true image icon of all the Old Testament was pointing us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus is standing as a monumental figure upon the timeline of history, casting his shadow into the old and casting his shadow into the future as Jesus stands as that figure, that pivotal moment that we even today in modern history balance our entire calendar based on when Jesus was born. It's extraordinary. And so we find that Jesus is the central figure. And then it's this idea of that he's the law. Uh, the law was a shadow of the good things to come, the good things of which many of which we participate in today, many of which we participate in today without even thinking about it. And Josh helped us think about it last week of, of just the intensity of the sacrifice, sacrificial system of the Old Testament and all the blood, sacrifice, and all that, and then now coming today of what we experience, the good things. Have you considered for a moment how good we have it in Christ? How good we have it through the new covenant and, and to live and consider for a moment the freedom, the grace, and the, almost the uniform access that we have to God. It's extraordinary, don't miss that. It's amazing. New covenant living here with the openness and the freedom and the loving grace in which we live in and walk in. It's almost like I think back of when like Moses in the Old Testament was filled with the Spirit and he says, I long for the day when everyone would walk and be filled with the Spirit as I am today. And we think of all that happened in Acts and Acts chapter two and Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit and now the Spirit that fills the church today and empowers each one of you with a special gift to serve and work together in unity. And no, we don't work at all perfectly, and yet we have the spirit that unifies us together. It is because of the new covenant that we live under, this new promised, this new covenant, you could say, this new relationship that we have with God, a means and a bridge whereby we can walk across and access God in means that were not possible before because of the sacrifice in the blood of Jesus and because of the simple fact that Hebrews 10 tells you what? Bulls and goats could never take away your sins. It's a very simple fact, but you think about for the thousands of years of history that that occurred. Bulls and goats, the blood of the bulls and goats could never take away of your sins, Hebrews 10 verse four. Because if it could, he works out in verses two and three, because if it could, then why would we need to sacrifice bull after bull, goat after goat, day of atonement after day of atonement after day of atonement, annually, year after year, month after month, day after, why would we need to continue on with that if it finalized it? Because it didn't. It was pointing to the one who would offer a single sacrifice once and for all and that atonement would effectually work for anyone who would believe in him for all time forever. 
That's a lot better, isn't it not? That's a lot better. As we look back to Jesus, the people in the Old Testament were looking by faith to the Messiah that would come one day. But we're all looking to Jesus. They were saved by faith, we are saved by faith. We're all looking in the new or the old, looking to the one who would come one day, the one that was foretold, the person of Jesus Christ. So the real problem all along here has ultimately been sin, the thing that has broken our relationship with God. The Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrificial system has pointed us to the one that as verse five says, fix this situation because consequently when Christ, as it says in verse five, came into the world and Palm Sunday, we're gonna celebrate that next week. He comes into Jerusalem to do one thing. He's headed to the cross. Comes into the world and through his obedience, Lord, take this cup from me, he says in Gethsemane, but do your, I will do your will. And he does, he obeys and through his obedience he satisfies God and he uh, it becomes the perfect sacrifice for all mankind. He fulfills the covenant law and he establishes and inaugurates a new way, a new and living way, a new covenant, a better way. And therefore we then find in Hebrews 10 verse 10 that we now are sanctified through the body or the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We're sanctified. The penalty of our sin has been removed. Our sin is covered with the blood of Jesus. The guilty penalty, the shackles, that the wages of sin is death. That wage of sin has been removed because Jesus has paid that penalty. The wages of sin for a saint in Jesus Christ no longer exists. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, right? The gift of God is eternal life. So our station and our position in Christ and our faith that places us as adopted into the family of God can never change. Eternally secure. We are secure in that position and in that place. And yet God chooses and for decisions as I get frustrated with sometimes, well, why, why did you work it out this way? Why is it not we just be saved and boom, we're off to heaven or Boom, we're in the presence of God. But for some reason he has chosen, and I think this is just the means by which God has established throughout the entire world. This is the way God works, through process. This is the way God works through, through um, kind of this working out over time, right? He works as he plants a seed, and a seed takes time to grow. The seed of regeneration and eternal life and are sanctified in the spirit. We are born again. And yet that seed germinates and grows over an entire lifetime. It's a progressive sanctification. It is a lifetime of growing and becoming into the likeness of Christ. You are being transformed, as Corinthians says, from one image of glory to another. It is a process that though that chain has been broken, the wage of sin is death no longer applies, but that shedding off of the effects of sin in my life is a process of of submitting to the Spirit so I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It is a process of sanctification that the spirit works within us. And we're all at different levels at that time but we're all relying on the same spirit. And I just love the beautiful uniformity of this passage. It's just a very simple passage. Look, that old could never satisfy but it was a shadow pointing us to the one who could. And he did it once and for all. So don't go back to the old as if you need to continually go. Rather, we go back remembering what Jesus has already done, that it is satisfied that on the cross he said it is finished, and that he's paid the payment once for all. 
And the new covenant now opens up a means for the spirit to dwell in us as the new temple of Jesus. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And now he transforms us from within. And we find this glorifying power that we can live each and every day. Glorifying God's spirit and glorifying God through the temple that we have no matter where we go. And then we are joined together and fit together to be a holy temple and a royal priesthood proclaiming the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is life together in the new covenant. And he tells you, you better not forget how important this is. He reminds you in Hebrews 10, a very famous verse. We didn't read it today, but you'll probably be very well familiar with it. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more that you see the day drawing near. What does it say there? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. If this is true of you, if this gospel message is true of you, don't neglect to gather together and proclaim this to the world. And that's what we do together when we come here on the first of every month. We come before a table and we gather together. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His death and resurrection. And we do that corporately. We do that as a body. We do that together. And so I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm just gonna read the verses and look through this idea, and then we're gonna come to the table. We meditate on the Lord's Supper for a moment. We just looked at some of the big ideas, the big, big ideas and the important ideas, the nuts and bolts of salvation that we looked at in Hebrews. Then we come here to 1 Corinthians 11. These are the verses I read every month. Do you find yourself sometimes it goes in one ear out the other? I, I, I know it's so easy to do that when it's something as habitual as we do it. Many churches even celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper every week. There's nothing right or wrong about one way or another, but it says here in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, and it said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or you preach, you preach the Lord's death until he comes. And implied in that is the Lord's death and the resurrection and all that means for us. Communion, the Lord's Supper, however you refer to it, maybe it's the Lord's table. Uh, Some celebrate a more expansive love feast in which more people are gathered at a a meal. Um, And other traditions of Christianity celebrate what's known as the Eucharist. Uh, The word Eucharist comes from this phrase in 1 Corinthians where it says, and he had given thanks. The word given thanks is the word Eucharisto. And so some people refer to it as the Eucharist as a little different flavor of what this table means. But Paul gives us instructions Notice right there in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is not something Paul just made up. He's received from God instructions that have been laid out already in order for the people of God to celebrate in an observance the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus laid this out in in himself. Luke chapter 22, pretty much check out any of the gospels and you'll see an account of the Lord's Supper where Jesus said almost word for word those exact words. He broke bread at the Last Supper right before he was going to be betrayed and he presents the body and he says this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what is going on? Why is Jesus saying these things? 
What is so important about all this aspect? And different church traditions, Catholic or Lutheran or Protestantism or Presbyterian, kind of maybe interprets the Lord's table in different manners. What is actually the body of Jesus Christ or is it the body or is it in and through and around the body? Here at Hope, there's a variety of ways of looking at it, but in many ways, for me, it's this symbolic situation in which we also have spiritually presence, the spiritual presence of God is here among us. And that is one thing that I find all traditions of Christianity agree on. It is the fact that God's presence is here. In what manner and what mode is maybe a topic for a different time. But the aspect today that there are these elements that are symbols of a spiritual reality. Baptism is another ordinance of the church like the Lord's Supper. We find that these things are aspects of the church that are practiced regularly among the people of God. Jesus refers to himself that this is my body. What does that mean? Well, Jesus also says, I am the door. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. In John 6, he actually says, I am the bread. Eat of me and, 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 and the cup. Eat of me and you will live. What does that mean? Well, for us, these elements are not just purely, solely alone symbols, but I think from a quote that I found from a, uh, actually from Calvin where he says, but we must establish such a presence of Christ in the supper. And I love that. Establishing a presence of Christ in the supper as may neither fasten him to the element of bread, nor enclose him to bread, nor circumscribe him in any way. I think it's important that we recognize today that we're not just here going to the table, circumscribing Jesus and just acting as if this is another day. This is a special, significant, spiritual moment of which I cannot fully describe to you in words. And yet I obey and walk in faith that God can and will and do. There is a symbolic presence here yet a genuine spiritual presence as well. A genuine, genuine spiritual blessing in the ceremony of the Lord's Supper when we partake corporately. Baptism often can mark the beginning, the regeneration of your spiritual life, can mark publicly for that. In a similar manner, Lord's Supper regularly marks the continuing of your sanctification and your faith in Jesus. A regular, continuing faith in Jesus. As baptism symbolizes the beginning or our justification. The Lord's Supper can symbolize our continuing faithful journey in that event, lived out each and every week, each and every time you partake together. It lives out your sanctification, that the Spirit is sanctifying you again for this week, one more week, walking in faith, trusting in Jesus, walking in that, taking that step of trusting Him and uniting yourself to the body. That's why it's important to gather physically, corporately together whenever you can and to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together and not to act as if the Lord's Supper has no power, no meaning, no whatsoever, but rather that it is an important thing that the church upholds and the church practices. And so we consider for a moment just the, the grace of God and all that is meant for you, for he says, this is my body, which is for you. Thank you. Which is for you, right? I think about that, consider for, like, in, he, the, the disciples in this moment have no idea what he's talking about. They don't understand what he's doing. They don't understand the significance, and that's okay. In fact, later on it says that they looked back and they remembered all that he said. But here, this is my body, which is for you. He laid down his life, sacrificed for you. And then he says this amazing phrase, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. I was hiking the mountain yesterday with a few friends, and that always allows me to think things out when I get all you know, clogged up in the brain. You can't think. I go out there and, and uh, be a glutton for punishment, right? Hiking them out, right? 
But I was talking to them about this verse and it just struck me the way that these two verses come together and it's kind of came out yesterday where I was, in Hebrews 10, 17, we just read it earlier. Jesus is quoting, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah 31 where he says, I will remember your sins no more and your lawless deeds no more. I will remember your sins and no more. We sang earlier, his mercy is more, right? Our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. We sang words that reflected these concepts and ideas. And then I love the fact that in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, do this in remembrance of me. I just find the beauty between these two verses extraordinary. The fact that God is choosing to forget the penalty of our sin. It is not attached to our lives anymore. We are free. We are forgiven. He chooses not to remember our sins and yet when we come to this table, we are told not to remember all that we have done but to remember everything that Christ has done. We come to the table to remember what Jesus has done for you because his body was given for you. Remember him. Each month as we come to the table, remember him. Remember the sacrifice. Remember the body that was given. Remember the blood that was shed. Do this in remembrance of me because the cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood that covers your sin and allows you to come to this table freely and openly. In all of who you are, you don't have to clean yourself up. You come to him boldly because of Jesus, because of his blood. That is the mark of the new covenant, this new relationship that you can have from God, which was foretold in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with this house. It's coming, and it's here. And even in this moment, there are good things still yet to come. That's the beauty of it. We are experiencing the good things that were to come, and yet we are also longing for the good things that are still yet to come the new heavens and the new earth that are foretold in the Old Testament and in the new, we find that ourselves still waiting in this body, in this life, in this earth that is still groaning in the pains for it to be restored, as it says in Romans. Groaning for the restoration of all things. And so we find ourselves today, I love this quote from Guthrie, he says, the Lord's Supper is a basic announcement of the gospel and a sermon by the entire church in silence. It's fascinating. Do you know you get to preach with me today? So at the end of the sermon, you can say, we did good, pastor. <laughs> we did good, preacher. We done good. You can say it that way in the southern way. Amen, right? You know? We done good in the sense that Mark Hollenbaugh always used to say that. We done good, right? You know, he's the idea that we can preach together here. In a moment, you're all gonna take, if you believe and trust in Jesus, if you follow him with your life and you want to take that next step of following Jesus, of proclaiming your sancti- the sanctification power that is occurring in your life, you come before this table, you receive the bread and the cup and we partake together. That is a preaching, that is a proclamation, that is a sermon by you. Yes, maybe in silence, but physical proclamation to the world outside. And maybe a physical proclamation to others around here who aren't sure about this. I'm not sure about this whole Christian thing, the whole faith thing, this stuff's still kind of weird. I understand that, okay? And so for you to come in and boldly proclaim your faith in Jesus by partaking together of this Lord's Supper proclaims his death and resurrection until he comes, until he returns for you awaiting that day, the fulfillment of all good things that are still to come. 